This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. All right, everybody, it is that time again for another episode of Pints in Perspective, and I'm excited to be here with Dr. Ben Blackwell again. Thanks for being here. It's great to be back. Yeah, we're still coming to you from the dry campus of my alma mater, HBU, so no beer. Sorry for that. But we do have a riveting conversation about the biblical basis for deification, participation, and theosis. So why don't you start us off? Where, where do we get our kind of biblical introduction into the idea of minus, minus Genesis 1 and 2, where we're made in the image of God? Where's the next place that this kind of appears for us? Yeah, the, the motivating text was Psalm 82, 6, uh, where it says, I said you were God's sons of the Most High, and nevertheless you die like uh, mere men. And in that text, it could be, you know, the word gods in the ancient world uh, is a flexible term. Right. Uh, you know, in fact, you have this whole idea that God is the God of gods. Or right. the Lord the, of the Lords. The right? most high God. Yeah, so there is this perception that there are multiple gods out there. So think in terms of like, you know, so in the Greek and Roman world, you've got Zeus and Apollo and these multiple gods. And, of course, the God of all those gods would be the highest of them. And while we wouldn't necessarily think that uh, they're actually gods, I mean, it, it, you can use the word Elohim for angels and other elevated divine beings. And so it could be that this text in Psalm 82 is talking about angels, like these archangels and things like this, that, oh, you were uh, gods, but then actually you became mortal, right? You did something, you fell away from that. And that fits in some of the things that we might see with regard to uh, the history of angels in the Bible. What complicates this is Jesus in John 10 uses this passage, and he's clearly talking about other humans as the who these people are, the you here. I said yeah. you are gods. And Jesus uses this to talk about humans. And so if we're reading this text in Psalm 82 as humans, then we have to ask the question is like, well, how in the world are humans gods? And we should we should we should not be so comfortable to say, well, like, oh, Jesus did that, but that's not really what he meant. Like, no, pretty sure Jesus meant this. Like, it's it's two humans. Yeah, it's it's like the King James Bible. If it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough yeah. for Jesus. <laughs> uh, so in that sense that we, if we have to think, well, what does this mean? And in the early church, as they're putting this together, and, and one of the things I think inherent in, in early church theology is that the whole Bible tells a coherent narrative it's not these chunks that are disconnected from one another and so as you said the genesis text is has to this you know you don't have one piece of the bible that's totally at odds with the other because you have one divine author and so when they read this text the early church that came up with this idea of theosis that we are gods um in a metaphorical manner they put it in connection with the genesis narrative so it said you're god sons of god and yet you die like mortals or humans and so that's what the whole narrative of genesis one and to three is is that god gave humans life 
and when they sinned, they died, right? Yeah. That's the most fundamental premise there. Like when the day that you eat of this, you're going to die. And so to talk about Christians or humans, sorry, in the image of God is basically for them to be gods. Right. And so there are two key things, though, that are important to this text that really help spell out the way that the early church put this together is that to be a god is to be a son of God. So right. anywhere you see language that talks about being a son of the Most High here is the way it's, or as in the Christian tradition, the idea of adoption then, that yeah. we are not gods by nature, right? That we have a distinct nature from God, but we are adopted. We, we take on and we get to share those family benefits, even though we're not immediately or by nature uh, God's children. The other thing here is that to be a God is to be immortal, Right. So he said, I said, you're gods, but you die like men. And so to die then is to do a non-God kind of thing. Yeah. And so in the Christian tradition, when we see things about being immortal or sharing in the divine life, rather than dying because of our sin, that this language then gets tied up with what it means to be deified or to, to become gods and to be like God is to share in his life. And so that's, in a lot of ways that you hear um, the the means to uh, salvation is through uh, God's grace. So we're not, we don't have salvation in life by nature, but it's by grace. Yeah. And the result or the, the content of what that salvation is, is to share in God's life. So to be, become living. And of course this is tied up with the whole death and resurrection of Jesus then in the Christian right. narrative. And so if we pop over maybe to like Romans 8, I think is where we see, you know, this language play out in similar fashion. And it's very, uh, you know, popular passage within Christian theology throughout the ages, but definitely in this sense of theosis. Well, the whole idea of salvation then is through the spirit who unites us to Christ, who comes and we, who is the spirit of life, right, is how we inhabit um divine life is through the presence of spirit who both transforms us internally now. So he talks about the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. But then also in Romans eight, you know, 10, 11, it says, look, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. And so we have, you know, an eschatological experience here that we have God's life here and now internally, but we will ultimately have life externally as well as our bodies are raised from the dead. And so, again, that, that whole thing of that resurrection, you know, in the future as well as the regeneration or the life now fits in that. But even then, we see later on he talks about how we're, spirit, we're children of God through the same spirit. Um, and also that uh, our adoption, even later in the passage, or is it verse 23 or so, that even describes our adoption as the redemption of our body. So even adoption itself is not just a relational reality, but our adoption creates a new reality for us, even bodily. And so it's this sense then that theosis is not just about living being moral or just, just about sanctification through the spirit, but it's about this holistic 
tie of we're saved for to participate in God's life. And so that's about morality and sanctification, but it's even just about life and peace, yeah. the experience of those virtues. But then also it, it links directly to that hope of the future, future resurrection when the whole world is restored and that we live on the recreated earth. Yeah, I think that's the piece about it that um, really matters for me because in the tradition that I grew up in, I largely kind of felt like um, I felt like we had a quasi-gnostic kind of eschatology where the body itself didn't matter. The end goal of salvation was for us to float away to heaven. Mm -hmm. But that really doesn't fit a biblical narrative as a whole. God made humans mind, body, soul, right? Mm -hmm. We have these elements about ourselves. And so you can't just get rid of the body. And here, I love this because we see our adoption tied directly to the redemption of our bodies. Mm -hmm. The body matters. And because the body matters, we get ethical implications, like you said. We get soteriological implications, like you said. We also get eschatological implications. Yeah. And for me, I think the eschatological piece and the redemption of the body itself and 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 what participation and in, in deification actually ends up looking like is my favorite one is Colossians two. Okay. Yeah. That that's my favorite. This idea that um, we are filled with Christ Himself. I think you you formulated this for me because when I was your informal um, research assistant, you were writing a paper on this for an article. I don't remember where it ended up getting published. Yeah, it's the Journal of Theological Interpretation. But yeah, verse 9 there, right, it says, For in him, in Christ, the wholeness, whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so we're, you know, he, God became human, right? Yep so that we might become gods or is uh, so is the how the church takes this so you know it dwells bodily and you have come to fullness in him so he has the fullness of deity and we have the fullness in him and so it's not that we're full in and of ourselves so again people get nervous with this idea that we are somehow elevating humanity and it's uh, we're still very creaturely you know but it's the whole idea of we were made to be experience that fullness right. through Christ. Yeah, I think um, for me that it's not that we are elevating ourselves to God or or becoming you know part of the Trinity. We're not. It's not going to be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God Ben and God Cullen. Right? It, it's not that. It is that God in his desire to be in relationship with us and in his love wants us to experience the fullness of life and life abundant, which happens in him reaching down and dragging us up to participate in his fullness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, Randy Hatchett uses the analogy of, uh, like a grandchild going to visit their grandparents and, and they go and they have this meal together and, you know, it's long and uh, enjoyable. But after the meal, you know, the old timey days, you go sit out on the front porch. 
Oh yeah. And so you have the grandfather and the grandmother sitting there and what, what does the child want to do? They want to snuggle up right in between them, you know, Always. experience. And even in, you know, it's like the way he tells the story is they're just sitting there in silence. And yet, uh, the grandchild wants to participate in that relationship, that closeness, that, that fullness that's there, even if they can't explain or articulate what, what it is, why they even want to be in the midst of that. And that's, you know, the way that the church has described the idea of theosis is that we have this community of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the one God. And that as we participate in union with the Spirit and Christ and the Father, that we, you know, in that sense, snuggle up in between them and, and share in that relational fullness that they exude and share, you know, with humanity through creation. Yeah, and I think... As, as I've developed in my own theology, what's been so formative for me is making God imminent. And so when we talk in theological terms, we have God the transcendent and we have God the imminent. And my experience with God had largely been that God was uber transcendent, almost to the point that he's not reachable, right? I, I come from a tradition, tradition that God knows everything that's going to happen. So if, if God knows everything that's going to happen, the question is, does prayer actually matter, right? It's, it's this question of when God is the ultimate transcendent, and that's his entirety of his being, what relationship is that if he's not available to me? Mm-hmm. And deification helped me ground a... Uh, a balancing place between the transcendent God who is, you know, is above us, is other than us, but also deeply, deeply committed to us in our relationship with him and with us here and now in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the whole, I mean, and again, lots of traditions emphasize the incarnation. I mean, Luther's theology of the cross, you know, very formative for me, and, you know, as it plays out, say, in Bonhoeffer's theology, I mean, it, very important there. But there is something here. It's like the the where you see God most fully is in his revelation in Jesus in Christ. Jesus, yep. You know, it's in that we we know who God is by his coming and becoming human. And and I think that's a, one of the things that when, you know, you can get lost in, um, if you ever study views of Christology and these ancient uh, what, what come to be known as heretical views of Nestorianism or monophysitism uh, as, you know, bad views. Nestorianism ha- holds this idea that humanity and divinity is ultimately incompatible. Right. And so in Jesus, you kind of have two people run around. You've got the divine Christ and the human Jesus you know, alternating between who's doing what. And that, that doesn't really capture what the Bible is, articulates about Jesus nor about what our spirituality is because we're not ultimately incompatible with God. God created us to be compatible. Now our sin separates us from him, but he reaches out to uh, reunite us. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have this the monophysites or the Eutychians. Uh, again, long words, but 
basically they said, look, there's a mixture between divinity and humanity, almost such that basically humanity gets absorbed into God. So you basically have a divine Jesus who kind of has this expression of humanity, but it's really just divinity there. And that means, again, in a way that humanity and divinity are, it's not that they're incompatible in the way Nestorianism is, but humanity is, doesn't have its place. It, it, right. it just gets absorbed into God. And so, of course, we don't find that in Jesus himself in the incarnation, but that's not the way our spirituality works either. We're not just absorbed into God. And that's when people hear theosis, they often uh, turn to that and think that's what it means. But the whole idea is that these two distinct realities remain distinct, and yet they go together. One of the illustrations that's most popular in the ancient church is putting an iron sword in a fire. And I think this really captures things well because the sword itself, they say, look, it remains iron. Like it doesn't change its nature, but it takes on the attributes of the fire. So it becomes glowing red. It becomes hot. And so in that sense, it participates in the reality of the fire without losing its own distinct identity. And that's the whole idea of participation or theosis is that we are united with God, Christ is in us. The spirit is in us. We have true union, but at the same time, we never lose our distinct identity as we take on uh, d- these divine attributes. Yeah. The iron in the fire was like, it w- it was the piece that, uh, for lack of a better term, it pushed me over the edge. It, it's like, it finally clicked for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we, we get to stay iron, but we get to be a different expression of iron. We get to be a little bit different. So bring in the holiness piece, right? The attribute of God. And, and we take on this, these attributes of God. And in so doing, we don't become fire itself, but we become something other that uses fire, that experiences and is changed by fire. And if that's not the biblical narrative, I mean, what is? Mm-hmm. For me, it was like, it was the thing that I was missing. It was the final puzzle piece that fell on the floor and I was still looking for it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, we're back to that idea of holiness. You know, we were talking about before where holiness is about not doing the bad stuff. Right. Uh, the term that I think best captures holiness is actually the word wholeness. Think Things mm-hmm. work in the way God intended them to be. And so with when we pursue holiness, that when we're living in obedience, we actually experience the life of God. So say I'm living in obedience in the way that I love my neighbor and particularly my wife, Heather, right? If I live in obedience to God in the way that I relate to my wife, then my I live in fullness yeah. <laughs> or wholeness because that relationship works well. Right. It's when we sin is when corruption comes in and, 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 you know, the, the problems that we encounter in life come from sin, not, you know, and of course there's spiritual opposition and other things out there. And so it's not a one-to-one karma relationship that if you do good, you'll be blessed in that sense. But we of course avoid unnecessary uh, problems as we live in obedience and fullness. And, and I, I think that's the whole thing of what is salvation for? It's not to die and help you to go to heaven. 
It's to live in the fullness of life that God intended us to live in the first place. And so, uh, you know, that heaven, while we wait for the recreation of the earth, maybe a piece of that, but that's not, that's only a small piece, you know, it's the full yeah. story. For me, I think um, there's a reason that the Genesis account of Genesis 1 and 2 talks about Adam and Eve walking with God. Because I think even in their perfection, even their pre-sin, they're still other than God. Mm-hmm. They still need a dispensation of his attributes. They still need to learn to be like him. Sin made that job harder. Sin broke the relationship. And so for me, the way that I see it is salvation is ultimately, and it, I'm about to get preachy as a pastor here, but um, if it's not about restoration and redemption, what is it? Mm. And if we believe that God is good, um, I'm going to quote your former student and our friend Josh Hilburn here. Um, if your good news isn't good news, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> If your good news about Jesus isn't good news, we've missed it. And so for me, deification, theosis, participationist, you know, however you want to talk about it, it it made good news good again because it brought the focus on restoration, wholeness, and redemption, not so that God can have all these little bots rock, walking around who don't sin but that God can be in relationship with the people who reflect his character and love for the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I like it.